Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's the Ancients on History Hit. I'm Tristan Hughes, your host, and in today's podcast, where it looks like you enjoyed our last Explainer episode all about Alexander the Great's victory at the Battle of Galgamela. And today, I'm delighted to say we're back with another Explainer episode. This time, we're talking about the battle that followed the clash at Galgamela, roughly three months later in January 330 BC. Now, this clash occurred in the Zagros Mountains, just west of the Persian ceremonial centre that was Persepolis. This was the Battle of the Persian Gates or the Persian Gate and it's sometimes been labelled as the Persian Thermopylae. Why is that? Well you're going to hear why in this episode today. Now sit back, enjoy. We're going to take you from the immediate aftermath of Alexander the Great's victory at Galgamela in October 331 BC. We're going to trace Alexander's movements south to Babylon, his stay at Babylon, then his movements to Susa, how he there deals with some issues which he's heard of further west in mainland Greece and in modern-day Bulgaria. We're then going to head east as Alexander advanced towards the Zagros Mountains proper. And then, of course, in part two, we're going to be finishing with a detailed rundown of the Battle of the Persian Gate itself. So without further ado, here's me to talk all about the Battle of the Persian Gate. It's the 2nd of October, 331 BC. Alexander the Great has just defeated the Persian king Darius III at the Battle of Galgamela. Darius is now fleeing east. He's abandoned his baggage train, his treasures, which he deposited at nearby Arbea, and he is fleeing east to cross the Zagros Mountains and to ultimately reach one of the Persian centres of administration, the provincial capital, the satrapal capital of Media, which is Ekbatana. Accompanying him, he has some of his bodyguard. He has some cavalry, particularly from ancient Bactria, which is modern-day northeast Afghanistan, southern Uzbekistan. He has some mercenaries, and he also has some of his kinsmen with him too. And he's not fully out of the picture yet. He vows to fight another day, to fight Alexander the Great again, and to reclaim his territories west of the Zagros Mountains. Now, Alexander doesn't pursue Darius straight away because he stays at Galgamela for a bit because he needs to fulfil one of the most important tasks of a Hellenic commander and that is of course 
to bury the dead. He may well have erected a trophy too. Having buried the dead, he reached the nearby city of Arbea, Arbella, the settlement, where he took possession of these treasures from the Persian baggage train, from the Persian army. And these included Darius's chariot, his bow, his arrows, and his shield, and much more. Now from there, Alexander, he doesn't head east in pursuit of Darius with his large army. He wants to head south, because now he needs to take control of the main administrative centres of the Persian Empire west of the Zagros Mountains, two settlements in particular, the first of which was the rich historic city of Babylon. Now, the name Babylon, it's ubiquitous. We all know the name Babylon. It's one of the most renowned, famous cities of antiquity. And it was also a well-fortified city. For instance, its citadel, following Alexander the Great's death, would be fought over between two particular successors, Antigonus and Seleucus, as they vied for control of this wealthy city and its surrounding lands. The walls of Babylon, too, were famed for the cement being used in it being bitumen, or asphalt. On top of the citadel, according to the Roman historian Curtius, you also had the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, although I know the exact location of where the Hanging Gardens of Babylon are today is very much debated. That will have to be a topic for a future podcast, I'm afraid, not for today. Now, the city itself, it had the river Euphrates flowing through its heart, and the two sides of the city were linked by this wonderful this very epic, this incredible stone bridge. It was seen as this wonder of the East, once again, according to the Roman historian Curtius. Now, Babylon, very prestigious, very historic city. It also had a record, the Babylonians, of revolting against the Persians. But it was heavily fortified. It was a well-fortified city, and it would cause Alexander some trouble if he was forced to besiege it. But fortunately for Alexander, he doesn't have to, because in advance of his arrival at Babylon, he is greeted by a Persian nobleman called Mazaeus. Mazaeus had fought for Darius III at the Battle of Galgamela, but following Galgamela, rather than follow Darius East, he had retired to Babylon. Babylon was where he had his family. He had married a Babylonian noblewoman. He had grown-up sons who were part, therefore, Babylonian. And so he comes out from Babylon with control of the city, basically, because he, with his grown-up sons, They go to Alexander as he's marching south towards Babylon and he surrenders the city to Alexander without a fight. He offers to hand over the city, its citadel and, importantly, its rich, wealthy treasuries. And for Alexander, this is fantastic news. He is now taking control of one of the great cities of ancient Mesopotamia without a fight. And so, having received the surrender of Babylon from Mazaeus, Alexander decides that he wants a magnificent spectacle. He wants to enter Babylon in style as their new ruler. And so he decides that his whole army, the Macedonian army, is going to advance into Babylon in full battle array, really showing off their military might. And this was a splendid display. It was a magnificent spectacle. You have to imagine flowers in front of the road which Alexander and his army are advancing along, strong odours of incense. And a good visual for this is if you've seen the 2004 epic film Alexander, which features Colin Farrell as Alexander the Great. There's one particular scene where they advance through the Ishtar Gate into Babylon and they're greeted by crowds of Babylonians heralding Alexander and the Macedonians as this liberating force and throwing flowers, celebrating, welcoming 
this force into Babylon itself. Now, according to Curtis, we then see a few other figures approach Alexander and his army as they're marching into Babylon proper. And the first key figure here is another prominent Persian. This Persian was called Bagophanes. And Bagophanes was the garrison commander. He commanded the Persian garrison, which occupied the formidable Babylonian citadel. And rather than fight, he follows Mazaeus's suit. He surrenders to Alexander. He goes out to meet Alexander. But he also wants to one-up Mazaeus because he brings Alexander some quite elaborate gifts, shall we say. He brings him herds of cattle and horses. But interestingly, he also brings him lions and leopards, both of which were caged. So, yeah, quite exotic gifts that Bagophanes bestows upon Alexander. He Evidently, he wants to get in with the new regime. He wants to cuddle up to Alexander and the Macedonians. Other prominent figures in the Babylonian regime follow, and these include the Babylonian priests, the Chaldeans, who are also known for their prophecies, and also the Magi, the Babylonian wise men. They all pay their respects to the new ruler, because very soon after, Alexander is proclaimed king of Babylon. Now, once Alexander and his men, they've established themselves in Babylon, Alexander quickly goes about rejigging the administration of this city. Now, the first port of call, one of the first port of calls at least, was who was going to be the new governor, the new satrap of Babylon, of Babylonia, of this city and its surrounding lands. Very fertile, very plain lands. This is the heartlands of ancient Mesopotamia. We've got the river Euphrates, you've got the river Tigris. This is a place where you have incredibly fertile plains. Now, who is going to rule over this incredibly wealthy region? Alexander here, he does something very radical compared to his previous appointments because up to then, he had only appointed as satraps, as governors, Hellenic figures, shall we say. Macedonians such as Antigonus the One-Eyed in Phrygia or perhaps Nearchus in Pamphylia and Lycia or Balacris in Cilicia. We'll come back to Balacris in a bit. Or, for instance, Cleomenes, the Greek from Naucratis in Egypt to govern Egypt. But now Alexander does something very different because he appoints a Persian nobleman. He appoints Mazaeus. So this is so interesting. Mazaeus is a really fascinating figure because less than a month before, he had fought, he had commanded Persian troops against Alexander at the climactic Battle of Galgamela. And now he was being rewarded by Alexander as governor of one of the wealthiest new regions in Alexander's growing empire. It's so fascinating to think, but actually at the same time, it makes a lot of sense because Mazaeus, we can presume he had a lot of experience governing, of ruling, and he also had these clear Babylonian links through his marriage to this Babylonian noblewoman and to his grown-up sons who were part Babylonian. And there's also a really interesting link here, and this is proposal has been put forward by the awesome historian that is Waldemar Heckel. And you might have heard of the Alexander sarcophagus in Sidon, near the eastern Mediterranean coast. You have these incredible depictions of Macedonians fighting Persians, the Alexander sarcophagus. And Waldemar Heckel proposed that perhaps this sarcophagus actually belonged to Mosaeus. And this battle scene that shows Macedonians and Persians is actually showing Mosaeus and honouring his role in the Battle of Galgamela, not fighting on the Macedonian side, but on the Persian side. That's one theory. It's not proven, but it's interesting. Mazaeus is a really interesting figure, and he is rewarded by Alexander for surrendering Babylon to him without a fight. 
So Mazaeus is named the new governor of Babylon, but he's not the only figure to receive a high position in Babylon. He's the only prominent Persian that we hear of. We don't hear of what happens to Bagophanes because Alexander still wants a Macedonian in command of the military garrison that he's going to leave in this city. And for that purpose, he appoints a figure called Apollodorus, Apollodorus from the city of Amphipolis. Now, Apollodorus was the brother of the famous seer in the Macedonian army, a figure called Pythagoras. And Alexander leaves Apollodorus with 2,000 troops and enough money to hire more soldiers if needed. One other figure to mention who is left in these upper echelons of the new Babylonian administration is a figure called Asclepiodorus, the son of Philon. We don't know much about this Asclepiodorus, but he was placed in charge of taxes, of collecting money. Alexander, speaking of money, money's not really an issue for him anymore, and especially when he reaches his next city, because he takes a lot of the money from the Babylonian treasury, first and incredibly important, first of all, to reward his soldiers, gratuities for their service to him in previous battles. This is their material reward. And the soldiers are presumably very quick to spend it because they spend the next month or so living in Babylon, enjoying what Babylon could offer them. They revel in it. And Curtius, the Roman historian, he portrays Babylon as this centre of incredible decadence where the Macedonian soldiers intermingled with sex-mad citizens as they enjoyed this month time off, as it were, before they set off again to go further east and to take control of more territory. But back to Alexander quickly and his time in Babylon. He also pays his respect to the city god of Babylon, Belmarduk. He makes a sacrifice to Belmarduk. He meets with the Chaldeans, the Babylonian priests, skilled in astronomy and also, of course, as mentioned earlier, associated with prophecies. Now, there'll be an interesting prophecy between the Chaldeans and Alexander later in Alexander's reign when he returns to Babylon. But that's for another podcast. And Alexander... He also ordered the reconstruction of the great temple complex of Esaglia. It was to be reconstructed, but not by the Macedonians, it's by the Babylonians. So on the surface, it looks like this great honouring of Babylon, saying we're going to reconstruct the great temple complex. But when you look a bit deeper, we're like, well, great, who's going to rebuild it? Oh, 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 we are, are we? Yeah, basically, that was what Alexander was promising with the reconstruction of the great temple complex of Esaglia. But there you go. That is Alexander and his time in Babylon. He and his army, they stay in Babylon for roughly a month, 34 days according to Curtius, and then they head out again, marching further east to the other key centre of the Achaemenid Persian Empire west of the Zagros Mountains. And this was the settlement of Susa. Now Susa is situated over 200 kilometres east of the River Tigris, the ancient site is near the modern Iranian city of Shush. And ancient Susa was built on the flat, incredibly fertile plains of Elam. And like Babylon, it was one of the great Mesopotamian urban centres of antiquity, with history perhaps stretching back as far back as 4000 BC. It's insane. It far predates the Persians and the Persian Empire. Today, get this fact. If we associate Shush with Susa, then Susa is one of the oldest continually habited cities on Earth. If you want to learn more about Susa, you can listen to our great podcast with Professor Lloyd Llewellyn-Jones all about this in the podcast episode, which is Palaces in Paradise, Centres of the Persian Empire. Now, Susa, like Babylon, was this key Achaemenid centre 
west of the Zagros Mountains, but it even was more important than Babylon, and perhaps even more important than Persepolis, east of the Zagros Mountains, which we will get to in due course, because it had this huge treasury, it had potential links to the family of the great King Darius I, it was this epicentre of the royal road, and it was a great bureaucratic hub of the Persian Empire, when at its height, it stretched from the Aegean Sea in the west, all the way to Bactria and the Indus River Valley in the east. It was an incredibly important city from the Achaemenid Persians. As mentioned, it was renowned for its treasuries. There was lots of gold, there was lots of silver stored at Susa, as Alexander knew full well. And fortune still stays on Alexander's side. Susa, unlike Babylon, is not really a place where you can mount a really important, a really successful, really powerful defence, shall we say, because it was unfortified. But in advance of him arriving at Susa, Alexander is greeted by the Persian governor, the Persian satrap of this centre, of this Achaemenid bureaucratic hub. And his name was Abulites. Now, Abulites, he sent his son in advance, basically to tell Alexander that I'm going to surrender Susa, and importantly, I'm going to surrender its treasuries to you without a fight. They're yours. Come and take them. Now, Alexander, he hears this from Abulites' son, then he advances to Susa. He is met by Abulites just outside the city at the Karasu River, and he then takes control of the city and the great wealth stored within. This wealth is something really to highlight. According to ancient historians such as Arian, Diodorus and Curtius, it was some 40 to 50,000 talents of gold and silver bullion. And alongside that, according to Diodorus, there were some 10,000 talents of gold darics. These are huge sums which Alexander has now taken possession of. Money is no longer an issue for Alexander, as you're going to hear, as you're going to find out in the podcast as we keep going on and on towards the Battle of the Persian Gate itself. Now, Alexander reached Susa in December of 331 BC. It took him roughly 20 days to go from Babylon to Susa. And there, once again, he makes some little jigs to the administration of Susa and the region Susa is in, Susiana, the satrapy, as it was, the province of the Achaemenid Persian Empire. Like he did with Mazaeus in Babylon, once again, he installs a Persian as governor. And this was Abulates. Abulates and Mazaeus, their fortunes with Alexander seem to be very similar at this time. And this is the same with what Alexander does with the military garrison here, because once again, alongside the Persian governor, he installs a Macedonian military commander. And this was a figure called Xenophilus or Xenophilus. He is left with a thousand soldiers and presumably more than enough money to hire more soldiers if need be. I mean, come on, it's Susa. You've got all of this money at your disposal. Surely, if they need more soldiers, they'd be able to just hire some mercenaries with all the money they have with these treasuries. Alexander leaves the garrison in Xenophilus' hands. And interestingly for Xenophilus, because we don't really hear of him much after this until following Alexander the Great's death, where interestingly enough, he will defend Susa against one of the successors, one of the players in the wars that erupt following Alexander the Great's death, which is the figure of Seleucus. Now, it's at this time that Alexander also has to deal with a few issues that have occurred further west in the meantime. One of these key events is in Greece, and the other key event is in southeast Turkey, in Cilicia, in southeastern Anatolia. 
There are also a couple of other events that I will mention briefly, one that occurred in Ukraine and one that occurred in southern Italy. But the main two events I want to talk about first is the one that occurred in Greece and the one in southeastern Turkey. Now, the first event, what's happening in Greece? Well, in 331 BC, there was this great anti-Macedonian revolt, which erupted, led by the Spartan king Aegis III. Interestingly, by December 331 BC, when Alexander's at Susa, this revolt has been put down already by the Macedonian viceroy in Macedonia. The elderly, he's in his 60s at that time, perhaps his early 70s, viceroy, which is Antipater, but he was a veteran general, he's renowned. He'd even be prominent following Alexander the Great's death. Antipater has put the revolt down, but Alexander doesn't know this yet. So he thinks he's still got this revolt in mainland Greece, threatening Macedonia, and he wants to help out Antipater with quelling this revolt. And now Alexander, he's got all this money at his disposal. He can't afford to send any troops west, but he can send money, and this will be what he does. But this is all linked to another event that has occurred in southeastern Turkey and is sometimes overlooked. Now, as Alexander had advanced through Asia Minor in those early years of his campaigning, he had left a number of governors in control of important regions in Asia Minor, in Anatolia. Antigonus the One-Eyed, for example, as governor of Phrygia. You had another figure such as Callas in control of Hellespontine Phrygia. You had Nearchus in control of Lycia and Pamphylia. And then you had Balacrus. Balacrus, this fascinating figure, a veteran general, a general who had served in the army of Alexander the Great's father, Philip II, and was a very prominent Macedonian noble. He'd married the daughter, for instance, of Antipater, the viceroy in Macedonia. So he's evidently one of these figures right at the top of those nobles surrounding the royal Macedonian Archaeid family. Alexander had left Balacrus as the governor of Cilicia as he headed first south to Egypt and then east to Galgamela, to Babylon, to Susa. And Balacrus had, first of all, he filled out his role very well. He had helped Antigonus and the other satraps in Asia Minor defeat a Persian counterattack that had followed the Battle of Issus in 332 BC. But then disaster had struck, because sometime in 331 BC, Balacrus, he's trying to maintain order in Cilicia. He's out with a group of soldiers, perhaps a small army or a patrol, probably near the Calucadmus River Valley in western Cilicia, which is really this gateway into the hinterland of the Taurus Mountains and this region called Isauria. But it was there that he had been ambushed by these pastoralists, these montane herdsmen, the Isauri or Ketai. Now, these Isaurians were renowned, they cherished their independence, they had never submitted to the Persians, they hadn't submitted to Alexander the Great. And so, when Balacrus gets a bit too close to their territory, for whatever reason, they ambush Balacrus and his army, they're joined by warriors from the nearby settlement of Loranda, and they annihilate that army, and they kill Balacrus in the process. Balacrus has been killed by these highland pastoralists who were renowned for their banditry, and this was something that would have greatly angered 
the Macedonians. Indeed, later on, there would be a punitive retaliatory campaign against the Isaurians led by Alexander the Great's leading adjutant, Perdiccas, following Alexander's death. It was a merciless campaign. Perdiccas completely destroys the Isaurian capital of Isaura. But that occurs many years later in the late 320s BC. For now, Alexander has this problem in his hands that he's lost one of his greatest governors and he needs to send a replacement, which he does, which is the figure of Menes. He sends Menes from Susa to the eastern Mediterranean to Cilicia to take control of this important region. Now, what's this got to do with Antipater and this anti-Macedonian revolt? Well, this is where all the money comes into play because Alexander gives Menes lots of money which he is going to escort to the eastern Mediterranean coast and from there that money is going to be taken to Greece, to Antipater to help him quell the anti-Macedonian revolt. Now, as mentioned, actually by this time the Macedonian revolt has been put down. Antipater has won the Battle of Megalopolis in the meantime. But the money is still sent, from what we know. And this will help Antipater in the years ahead, particularly, once again, following Alexander the Great's death, when there is a great anti-Macedonian revolt led by the city-state of Athens, the Lamian War, following Alexander's death. You'll notice by me I go on tangents largely for this stuff to highlight why what happens following Alexander the Great's death is just as interesting, even more interesting, than the events of Alexander's campaigns themselves. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, if you're enjoying this podcast, then I know you're going to be fascinated by the new episodes of the History Hit Warfare podcast, from the Napoleonic battles and Cold War confrontations to the Normandy landings and 9-11. We reveal new perspectives on how war has shaped and changed our modern world. I'm your host, James Rogers, and each week, twice a week, I team up with fellow historians, military veterans, journalists, and experts from around the world to bring you inspiring leaders. If the crossroads had fallen then what Napoleon would have achieved is he would have severed the communications between the Allied force 
and the Prussian force, and there wouldn't have been a Waterloo. It would have been as simple as that. Revolutionary technologies. At the time the weapons were tested, there was this you know, perception of great risk and great fear during the arms race that meant that these countries disregarded these communities' health and well-being to pursue nuclear weapons instead. And war-defining strategies. It's as though the world is incapable of finding a moderate light presence. It always wants to either swamp the place in trillion-dollar wars or it wants to have nothing at all to do with it. And in relation to a country like Afghanistan, both approaches are catastrophic. Join us on the History Hit Warfare podcast, where we're on the front line of military history. But those are the two main events, this event in southeastern Turkey and this event in central Greece, that Alexander deals with, shall we say, in Susa. The other two events which I'll mention very briefly are events that it's probable that Alexander and his army hear about around this time, perhaps a bit later. One is the destruction of a Macedonian expedition north of the Danube River by this idiotic figure called Zopirion. Zopirion had been left as the governor, as the strategos, the military commander of Thrace, uh, modern day really Bulgaria. But he'd seen Alexander gaining all these conquests further east and he wants, you know, I want a bit of this Macedonian conquest pie and I want to conquer some lands. Ooh, let's have a look north of the Danube River. Let's look into Scythia. Let's look north of the Black Sea. Let's look at these incredibly wealthy Greek colonies on the northwestern coast of the Black Sea. Let's see if we can take control of them for the Macedonian Empire. It fails horrifically. He has a failed siege of Olbia in modern-day Ukraine, and he tries to retreat to the Danube River, but he and all of his army are wiped out. It's basically the Macedonian Teutoburg Forest, in a way. It's a disastrous campaign. It's one of the great setbacks of Alexander the Great's reign, shall we say, even though it doesn't feature Alexander in particular. So that's one event that Alexander's probably heard at this time, this great setback in modern-day Ukraine. The other one is the death of his uncle, also called Alexander, confusingly. Alexander, king of Melosha in southern Italy, fighting against a number of Italian people, such as the Brutians, the Messapians, the Apulians, and Lucanians. So these events probably reach Alexander at the same time. But of course, it's the event in Greece and the event in Cilicia, which are of prime importance to him. So that's my tangent of what's happening elsewhere at this time when Alexander the Great's in Susa. Back to Susa and people coming to Susa to Alexander the Great's army at this time because it's also now that he receives a number of reinforcements. These reinforcements include 6,000 Macedonian infantrymen and 500 Macedonian cavalry alongside 9,000 Allied infantry and cavalry from places west of the Aegean Sea. So think mercenary Hellenic hoplites, but perhaps also some Thracians, some Paeonians, some Illyrians, perhaps even some Molossians, some Epirots in there too. They've all come to bolster Alexander's army. Macedonians, mercenaries and the like, sent by Antipater many months before. Now, this is a huge reinforcement batch for Alexander, but it doesn't end there because there is also the arrival of some 50 adolescent Macedonian noblemen. And these are going to become pages, the page system, the royal pages. They are basically going to be servants of Alexander and probably of Alexander's closest circle where they're going to serve and observe, as it were. They're going to fight alongside Alexander and his closest companions, bringing fresh mounts, fresh weapons if they need them. They're going to be the generals of tomorrow. 
the commanders of tomorrow and they go to Alexander, they go to his army and they witness, they watch and they learn to become Macedonia's future commanders, these noble adolescent boys. So these 50 royal pages arrive at Susa at the same time as these reinforcements. Now, having received these reinforcements, either in or in the area surrounding Susa, Alexander makes some small changes, some reforms to his army, particularly around his cavalry. Up to that point, his cavalry, particularly his heavy cavalry, his Macedonians, his Thessalians, have been divided into squadrons called Eli. Eli. Now, these squadrons were based upon where the horsemen came from. For instance, there was a squadron of Pharsalian Thessalian horsemen, and they were called the Pharsalian squadron because they all came from the city-state of Pharsalus. So up to the point, these squadrons, they were based very much on where the horsemen came from in either Thessaly or Macedonia, and they were grouped together, just like the Macedonian infantry battalions, like there was a Lincestian and Orestian battalion, there was a Timphian battalion, and so on. Now, what's interesting here is that Alexander, he doesn't change the ethnic makeup of these squadrons as of such, but he divides them in two. He divides each elay into two companies. So one squadron is equally divided into two lokoi, two companies. And he does this for all his cavalry. So he basically adds another layer to his cavalry structure of command. And what he also does is that he now appoints the people who are going to command these elay and these lokoi not based on their ethnicity. For instance, for the Pharsalian squadron, the commanders didn't have to come from the city-state of Pharsalus. He would appoint commanders from now on based on merit, based on how they'd performed on campaigns, in battles, in the respect they had from their fellow soldiers. So that's really the interesting change, this subdivision, this creation of the companies within each squadron, and also the decision that from now on, new commanders are not going to be appointed based on ethnicity, but by merit. So that is all about Alexander's army at the time it reaches Susan. The nucleus of his army, as it will remain, is still his Macedonian heavy infantrymen, each of which is equipped with the six-metre-long pike, the Sarissa pike, with their small pelter shield, with their linothorax armour, with their helmets, perhaps Boeotian or their Phrygian helmets, and so on. I know the Hypaspists might have slightly different armour. I addressed that in the previous podcast, Alexander the Great's Greatest Victory, the other explainer episode that precedes this one. But back to Alexander. We're getting closer to the Battle of the Persian Gate, I promise. So Alexander, he remains at Susa for a short amount of time. Less time than he did spending at Babylon. Because soon he keeps advancing east. He wants to reach the next key Achaemenid urban centre, which is the one east of the Zagros Mountains. Opposite him, it is Persepolis. This incredible ancient city. This ceremonial capital, perhaps of the Achaemenid Persian Empire. It is a little bit debated. If you want to learn more about Persepolis and its history, please do listen to our other podcast with Lloyd Llewellyn-Jones all about this city, when it was constructed and how important it was for the Persians. Now, Alexander, to reach Persepolis, he has to cross the Zagros Mountains. And by this time, it's December 331 BC. It's wintertime. It's going to be difficult. The passes, the mountain passes, there's a risk that there might be snowdrifts, that it might make it very difficult for them to get through the mountain passes quickly. And it also runs the risk of them being ambushed, as we're going to get onto very soon. But Alexander's not at the Zagros Mountains yet, because between Susa and the Zagros Mountains was a territory, let's call it Uxian. 
it was inhabited by a people called the Uxians. Now, the Uxians, you can divide them into two. Well, our sources divide them into two. You had, first of all, closer to Susa, in the lowland plains, you had the lowland Uxians. Now, these were farmers. They lived in these plains between the Zagros and Susiana. But they also were subservient. They had submitted to the Persian Empire before, and they were ruled by a Persian governor, Persian satrap, called Medates. Medates, who may well have been a cousin of Darius. And then you had the highland Uxians, living in the foothills of the Zagros Mountains and occupying places in the Zagros Mountains themselves. And unlike their lowland counterparts, and actually very similar to what we were talking earlier about the Asaurians in southeast Turkey, living in the foothills and the highlands of the Taurus Mountains, those who had killed Balakrus around this time, like the Asaurians, these highland Uxians had never submitted to the Persian Empire. In fact, it was quite the opposite. Because they controlled such a vital route between Susa and Persepolis, and because they were so experienced, they knew the rugged terrain of this part of the Zagros Mountains so well, that they had been cocky enough and they had succeeded in demanding tribute from Persian armies in the past so that the Persians could advance through their lands to get between Susa and Persepolis. That's what the ancient historians say, at least. Arian, for instance. Now, Alexander has conflict with both of these people. First of all, Medites and the lowland Uxians decide to resist Alexander, but Alexander, he gains intelligence of the region. First of all, he then equips a elite force of his soldiers and he launches a lightning attack at the lowland Uxians and overwhelms them. And Medites is forced to submit and he is fortunate enough that he is left in charge, although it requires, according to Curtius, it requires the intervention of Darius's mother, Sissy Gambis, to plead with Alexander to not punish them too harshly. So Alexander, first of all, deals with the lowland Uxians, and now he's reaching the foothills of the Zagros Mountains themselves. And it's here that he comes into conflict with the highland pastoral Uxians, because they demand, just as they have with the Persians, they go to Alexander, hey, you can march through our lands if you want, but you've got to pay us tribute in advance. And if you don't, we are going to harass your army like you've never experienced before. We're going to rain death down upon you through the valleys, through the passes that we know so well. So you better pay us tribute. And Alexander the Great is basically like, no, I don't think so. You're going to submit and now I'm going to teach you a lesson and it's not going to be nice. Because that's exactly what he does. He doesn't say those exact words, but you know what I mean. Basically, it's Alexander the Great. He's not going to pay tribute to these highland pastoralists, these people who he doesn't really see as anything like the Persians. And so once again, he gains intelligence of the highland Uxians region. He knows where their villages, where their settlements are. He knows where the Uxians are likely to make their stand, where and which pass. And he launches another lightning assault with his elite group of infantry, his foot guards, his high pacifists. The lightning assault, they storm the villages, they storm the settlements, they sack, they loot, they plunder, they lay waste the Uxian pastoral settlements. And then they advance in the place where they know that the Uxians will be gathering to confront Alexander. And Alexander's soldiers, they reach there before the Uxians have even arrived and overwhelm them there too. So the highland Uxians are completely overwhelmed and they beg, they sue for peace, which Alexander does give, but he demands a heavy tribute from them. And one of the interesting things from this tribute is that, of course, the Highland Uxians are pastoralists. And actually, one of the key parts of the tribute isn't the money, isn't the gold or the silver. It's 
he demands a lot of livestock. And you can see the importance of this when you consider that Alexander is going to be marching through this area of the Persian Empire, this area of the Middle East, where there's not much supply, shall we say. So actually getting all of this tribute, getting all of this food is going to be incredibly beneficial for him and his army in the immediate months ahead. I hope you've enjoyed this very special podcast explainer episode all about Alexander the Great's march to the Zagros Mountains where he will fight the Battle of the Persian Gates, the Persian Thermopylae. The battle itself we are going to cover in part two, which, don't you worry, is going to be released very, very, very soon. In the meantime, I'd just like to bring your attention to another aspect of Alexander the Great ancient history, or shall we say, what follows Alexander the Great's death? Because as no doubt you know from this podcast, I love that period and I've actually now finished writing a book all about it. It's called Alexander's Successes at War, The Perdiccas Years, and it covers the immediate aftermath of Alexander's death and how his empire so quickly starts to fragment, starts to decay, as his former generals start to fight amongst themselves for power, for supremacy in this new post-Alexander world, including this prime figure that is Perdiccas. That book is coming out at the end of this month and no doubt you'll be hearing more about it in due course, but just search The Perdiccas Years, Tristan Hughes, and that book should hopefully come up. It's been published by Pen and Sword. Other things from me very quickly at the end, if you want to subscribe to our weekly Ancients newsletter, well, you can via the link in the description below. If you would be lovely enough to leave us a rating on Spotify, that'd be greatly appreciated, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And with all of that, that's me done. I will see you in the next episode. I will see you for part two of Alexander the Great and the Persian Thermopylae. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Ancients. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code ANCIENTS at checkout.